on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions you have as you've been studying God's word, maybe a personal challenge in your life or ministry that you would like counsel on. If we can help, by God's grace, we will do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 525-1859. Our toll-free number for our internet listeners is 877. The call letters WAGP. 980. Uh, Many people also email us here directly into the studio. And so the email address, if you want it to pop up on our screen, is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. We always give live callers preference. And if you do call, you can simply uh, dictate your question or you can uh, go on the air live. And I think we already have a live caller. So let's go there, Rick. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Yeah, thanks for calling today. How can we be of help? Well, this is Rick calling from Hilton Head. And my question, Pastor, is uh, pertaining to the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. The, re- the redeemed from the tribulation period that will go into the Millennial Kingdom, as well as those who are born during the Millennial Kingdom that accept Christ, when will they receive their glorified bodies? And is, is there any scripture that points that out? Are we there? Uh, I, I don't yes, have any sound. I lost connection. There we go. Okay, sorry. We lost connection That's there. That's okay. Um, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't specifically say in Revelation 20, so it is a question that often comes up. But I think it's uh, safe to assume that at the end of the millennium that God will do a resurrection of uh of of trib- of uh, millennial saints, uh, it, it seems the only logical place to put it. Uh, obviously, once we uh, finish the millennium, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. So it has to happen by then. Um, so while it's not specifically outlined as such, it's certainly part of the first resurrection program. And God speaks of the first resurrection versus the second resurrection in Scripture. And in the first resurrection program, it begins, of course, with Christ, the first fruits, those Old Testament saints who were uh, immediately um, uh, raised from the dead shortly after the resurrection of Christ, the rapture of the church, tribulation saints, millennial saints. So while it's not spelled out, it's fair to say, especially in light of Revelation 20, 11 to 14, where it says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. And so there you have the dead of all time who are brought to life and who meet God in the 
final judgment. And that would include unbelievers who come through the millennium, because it's very clear at the in Revelation 20, um, it says, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for war against God's Christ. And so uh, there's going to be people, even with Jesus, ruling and reigning on the earth. And that shouldn't surprise us because the first time he walked upon the earth, not everyone responded to him and not everyone will respond uh, during the millennial reign of Christ. Um, And they uh, are incited to rebellion and they follow the promptings of the evil one. And so they end up um, uh, having a rebellion against the Lord Jesus. And then right after that, there's this great white throne and the only people present are lost people. And uh, they are finally and forever judged and put away into the lake of fire. And then he sees a new heaven and a new earth. So clearly uh, you have all of the lost people of all time, which would include those who were lost uh, during the millennial reign of Christ, and they are in resurrected bodies. And again, just like the body I have right now is not suited for heaven, uh, neither is the body of an unbeliever suited for hell. And so Jesus spoke of two kinds of resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the lost in John chapter 5. So unbelievers also get a resurrected body. You know, I often have thought about the fact that, you know, on Easter Sunday, uh, people come out to church in America like no other Sunday of the year, and a high, high percentage of lost people will come into our churches, which is great because it gives us an opportunity to potentially win them to Christ. But if they really thought about it, they don't have anything to celebrate if they leave in the same state, if they leave lost. You know, they're there as lost people because they are lost, like sheep, Um, who really have no direction, but there's really nothing there for them to celebrate because the message that I preach on Easter and really every Sunday of the year that Christ is alive is good news to the believer, but it's the worst news for the unbeliever because as it guarantees the fact that because he lives, I will live also, it also guarantees the fact that because he lives, they too will get a resurrected body that will experience pain and torment and never be consumed by the flames of hell. And so I think it's very fear, uh, very safe to say um, at this point would be also the resurrection of the millennial saints, those who come to faith during the millennial reign of Christ. It's not spelled out, but I think it's reasonable to say that at this point. So does that make sense? Yes, yes, Pastor, it did. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rick, for calling. Sometimes, you know, there's not always a verse, but when you put things together, uh, you can only come to one conclusion. It's like, um, you know, a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, There's not a single verse that spells it out, but when you put a lot of verses together, you have no choice. If, uh, you know, some people say that we'll be here for the tribulation period and at the end of the seven-year tribulation that Jesus will come back and all the saints of God will, will go up, and, and those who are pre-trib, pre-millennial, then they'll come back in resurrected bodies to rule and reign. The, the only problem with that is there's no one who can rebel against uh, God at the end of the millennium. So if you just literally interpret the Scripture, and unless there's a reason not to, some symbol or metaphor or in those rare occasions when... when um, 
when when God gives a, a you know a parable of sorts or an uh, an analogy, um, and you don't take it literally. Um, then you should, otherwise you should just interpret the scripture literally. And, and that's how all the prophecies of the first coming were fulfilled. They weren't allegorical in nature. They were literal in nature. And for us to assume that the ones for the second coming will happen any differently would be, would be folly. And we're actually going to get into some of these issues in the upcoming series that we're doing in Romans 9 through 11. Um, and there's a reason John Calvin and others like him did not believe in a literal reign of Christ upon the earth. Uh, and it's the way he viewed Israel and some of the promises that God made. And it's because he spiritualized prophecy. He didn't interpret uh, the rest of the Bible that way. But when it came to prophecy, he spiritualized it. And interestingly, John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. He really just didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I think it would be embarrassing uh, to have heard some of the interpretations he would have come up with. Anyway, that's a great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Dr. Brooke, this is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? Hey, doing well, Anthony. Thanks for calling right. today. And you, and you too, Rick. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, I was uh, taking a drink of water there. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, Dr. Brother, we'll let everybody know that we do have the best Sunday school class. Rick Forster has got the best. That's a commercial for him. <laughs> all right, all right. All Good right, deal. Okay. Um, Dr. Brother, it, it is, I believe it's God's will that that he don't want no one to perish, correct? That's correct. He wishes okay. none to perish, but all to come to repentance. All right. Is, is it right? I'm asking, is it right? Is it right to say that if that's, if it's God's will that no one should perish, is it right to say that uh, to pray for salvations for someone is that a prayer that God has to answer or must answer? And if and some I guess the word also says that sometimes uh, we ha- when we're praying you have to uh, pray and fast for a certain whatever it is that you're praying and fasting for. Mm-hmm. And if we have to pray and fast for someone, what is the difference in praying and fasting for someone to answer, for God to answer a prayer like that, than just a regular prayer? Mm-hmm. Because I think there's, there's a whole lot more when you fast and pray than you do just, I guess, a regular prayer, if I'm correct, if I can say it like that. Yeah, that that's a great Great question, Anthony. Really, a couple of questions there. So let me let me see if I can respond. Uh, first of all, let me just say that there are some prayer, some prayers that we can make to the Lord uh, that because the kind of promise that God has given, that we can claim it and we can come in faith and we can believe it. So you have a really a prayer promise in First John 5, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he has heard us in whatever we have asked, then we know that we have the requests that we've asked from him. And so if I um, ask God to forgive me of my sin, uh, that's according to his will as a Christian. First John 1, 9 is the Christian's bar of soap. It's written not to lost people, but to those who've already been eternally forgiven but it's a verse, of course, that doesn't deal with salvation forgiveness, but fellowship forgiveness, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. I can claim that in faith. If I ask God, the Holy Spirit, to fill me and empower me, 
I can claim in faith that he will do that, assuming I've met the preconditions for being filled and empowered with the Spirit. I don't have to wonder whether God's going to do that, because Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Uh, Don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. It's a loss of control, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's a command for me to be filled with the Spirit. And if I'm not, I'm in disobedience. And so God, the Holy Spirit, needs and wants to fill the believer in, again, assuming we're not grieving him or quenching him by faith, we can claim God, uh, believe God's promise to do that. There are other promises in the Bible that are not totally dictated on our will, but other people's will. So sometimes, you know, people come in and more and more the entry level for people into the church is a crisis in their home. And rarely now a week goes by. And it's so different for a young pastor now going into the ministry than someone who went into the ministry 30, 35 years ago, because there's just crisis all over America in the family. And so people come, why'd you come? Well, my husband left me and, you know, I didn't know what else to do. And so I'm just asking God to help me. And, and sometimes these are Christian people, some who've been out of fellowship with God, some who've been you know, abandoned against their will. And, and they'll say to me, well, I know God doesn't like divorce. And so if I pray and ask God to restore my marriage, is it just an issue of my faith that I can believe God to, to fix it? Well, it is true in Malachi 2.16, I, the Lord God of Israel, hate divorce. That's what God said. He hates divorce. So it's not God's will for people to get a divorce. God's ideal is one man, one woman until death severs the relationship. But with that said, God doesn't go against the person's free will. God works in conjunction with a person's free will. And so I cannot unilaterally claim or promise as it relates to another person. Uh, That person has to um, be inclined to do what God's word says to do. Now I can pray and I can seek the Lord God on that, but I can't believe for them. I can believe for myself what I can do and what I have control of. And so if someone, you know, has a spouse that has abandoned them, um, they can say, Lord, you know, I don't want to get a divorce. I know what your will is. I know what your plan is. And I'm just asking uh, you to save my home and my marriage. But in God can certainly um, uh, fashion the conditions in that person's life and the circumstances to predispose them and answer to your prayer to uh, wake up and to smell the roses and to smell the coffee and to see that what they're doing is evil and wrong and maybe they can come to their senses. But ultimately, they have a free will and they have to make that decision. Now, you know, many times people come in and, you know, there's a marriage crisis and they are believers and I, and I will encourage them even to pray and fast, maybe to take a, at least one uh, lunch out of the uh, week or one meal or one day, depending on what their physical capabilities are, and to spend some time in prayer and fasting. Why? Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so when you, one, are not having to go to the restaurant or to prepare the meal, even the time that it would take to drive to Chick-fil-A and eat lunch or uh, to fix your sandwich or to heat up your soup or whatever you're doing, you now have some additional time where you can pray. Not to mention when you are not eating uh, and there's that little hunger pain, there is a reminder uh, to, to, to pray and to lift up that need. And so God sees that. 
And so there are some, some prayer that needs to be accompanied by fasting, assuming we have the health capability to do that. And so um, Jesus assumed his people would fast and pray. He didn't say if you fast, but when you fast, here's what you do there in the Sermon on the Mount. With that said, when it comes to saving lost people, while God is not willing that any should perish, that that all should come to repentance, God doesn't take away the free will of man. Now, we'll come to this, you know, in Romans 10, and we'll talk a little bit about this in our dialogue in Romans 9, 10, and 11, a section of Scripture often misunderstood. Romans 9 deals with Israel's election, uh, chapter 10 with their rejection, and 11 with their restoration. Uh, But interestingly, how chapter 10 opens up, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So Paul prays for the salvation of the lost. And it's not all fixed in advance where people don't have any say and God's the great puppet master and, you know, and they can just, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're going to come to faith and all the more reason to pray because God's going to answer. Them. No, there's an earnestness here that the word for desire is I'm begging, I'm begging God to do this. Um, and so there are people that God will burden you with that you should pray for, but ultimately they still have a free will and they can say no. Um, but that doesn't mean that God may not work in response to your prayer. He does respond to prayer. Uh, In fact, there's um, John Wesley once said, God does nothing apart from prayer. Well, I don't know that I would totally agree with that, but I would say this, that most of what God does in our lives, in our ministries, uh, that is fruitful, Christ-centered, bringing him glory, is in response to prayer. And, you know, many times when I share the gospel with people, I know that I'm entering into someone else's prayer work, uh, someone else who's been interceding at the throne of God, sometimes for decades. And uh, I, I led a gentleman to Christ in our church a few years ago, and his cousin called me from Columbia, and he said, I, I can't believe my cousin's getting baptized. He said, you know, I've prayed for him for 25 years to find Christ. And he said, I'm just uh, elated that this man has found Christ as his Savior. And, you know, again, I entered into his, his prayer. So um, it, 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 it matters when you pray. And sometimes even fast. God may cause you and burden you to fast for someone uh, as you intercede for their salvation at the throne of Christ. So prayers make a difference, but you cannot say, well, you know, since it's God's will for people to be saved, I'm just believing in faith that God will save this person and they don't have any say in it. I I wish it worked that way. Um, I I prayed for my brother, Roger, who went home to be with the Lord in, in, um, in November and uh, when my brother Richard and I came to Christ, we were both just burdened to pray for him. And we just, I remember one night God just met us. We were up in his home in Vermont and we were on our knees and you just, it was just one of those prayer times when you could sense the presence of God in an unusual way in that room. And God met us and we had a sense that God was going to answer our prayer. And he did about about three weeks before he died. He came to genuine faith in Christ. And I remember a relative there in the hospital um, saying, well, Roger, you're going to go to heaven. You're such a good person. And he said, no, no, no. 
said, I'm going to heaven because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ has saved me. And even there, as weak as he was, you know, from the cancer that had ridden his body, he was giving confession of, of what God had done in his life. And it was in response to prayer. And God opened his eyes where he could see the truth and the reality of the gospel. So don't ever lose heart in praying for your lost loved ones. And sometimes, you know, those prayers are answered even after you uh, go home to be with the Lord. And um, so you you just never know how God is going to work and how he's going to operate. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. I I think we've had some emails come in. And if you'd like to call us, you can, 525-1859. Toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. Jamie from Lillowup, Washington, just listened via WAGP radio to Sunday's sermon on Romans 9. She sent this in a couple of weeks ago when you had uh, just returned to Romans 9. And she writes, your comment at the end of the message to those who might be new in the faith to hang in there for their understanding of the Scriptures Uh, because it'll grow with time and exposure. She says, we appreciate your wringing out every shred of truth in a passage rather than constantly dumbing it down, supposedly for the sake of new believers. Could you comment on the oft-repeated sentiment, church isn't about what you can get out of it, but what you can put into it? To desire the manifold riches of God's word in a sermon is to many seen as a self-centered and unworthy expectation. My husband and I were saved by a teacher-preacher such as yourself, And when we didn't understand, we always at least got a glimpse of the immensity of God and wanted more. Well, uh, Jamie brings up a good point in that many times pastors today are convinced that they need to dumb down the message for the sake of lost people or new Christians, and they can't be too heavy. We discussed this a little bit last week, and it's a new paradigm that a lot of churches have developed all in the name of winning people to Christ. Well, if anyone knows me, they know I am you know, passionate about seeing people find the Lord, but you never change God's methodology to reach a vital end. And it is vital that we win people to Christ, but we do not abandon what is to take place in the Lord's day in which to accomplish that. And so more and more what churches are doing, when you talk to pastors, they'll say, well, you know, our service on Sunday morning is seeker sensitive, but you know, if you want something deeper you know, you need to be in a small group during the week and the small group's going to help you. And listen, (laughs) small group leaders, God bless them. And there's some very mature ones, but if you have a large church and you have a hundred, say, small groups, my guess is that there's only a handful of those people uh, that are gifted and called of God as pastor teachers to equip God's people and to ground them in sound doctrine. So basically what we're doing is we're, we're saying the man of God, the pastor, who's supposed to preach the word, who's supposed to uh, preach in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He's to instruct people in the word of God. He's to show his love by feeding the flock. He's going to abandon that role and he's going to give it many times to very immature people. Many times the small group leaders aren't that much stronger than the new Christian who's coming to his small group. And so what does that do? It, it, it becomes a, a free-for-all in these small groups, and it's pulled ignorance, and, and many times they're not functioning out of a good, solid doctrinal base themselves because the pastor has abandoned that on the Lord's day. So when I open the scriptures, I realize every week, it's, it's like when the kids come in and 
I share the gospel, I always ask them to do two things before they leave. I'll say, would you do two things every Sunday? Um, these are kids, seven, eight, nine, ten. They come in with their parents. I say, one, will you, will you pray for Pastor Carl that God would help me when I preach on Sunday morning? And number two, I want you to pray for yourself that God will speak to you. Sometimes I'll ask the kids, well, do you know your numbers? Oh, yeah, I know. Do you know how to add and subtract? Yes. Multiply and divide. Yeah, I know that now, Pastor. And how about algebra? Do you know algebra? No, I don't know that yet. How about geometry? And they'll smile. How about trigonometry or calculus? And I'll explain to him, I'll say, listen, I have to every Sunday morning feed some people who are learning their numbers, and I have to feed other people who are into spiritual calculus and everything in between. So I remind them, don't worry about the things you don't understand. Uh, God will give you something from the message that you can take home and run with. Uh, so the statement uh, is really a half-truth that you make here. Um, church is not about what you can get out of it, but what you give to it. That's a half-truth. It's not either or, it's both hand. I mean, think about it. Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. Or encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today. Or do not forsake your assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, if someone is encouraging me, I'm getting something out of it. If I'm being sharpened by someone else's iron, I'm getting something out of it. So church is really a two-way street. Um, The gifts of the Spirit are brought together, and we benefit from one another's spiritual gifts. Um, So yes, as we grow in Christ, we need to find a place of service, ideally that matches our spiritual gift, though we have common spiritual responsibilities, and we utilize that in the church. Um, And two, hopefully we're blessed not just by other people, but also by our pastors who are opening the scriptures, because the way a pastor principally shows his love for his flock is to feed them. And that's hard work. You know, when my wife fixed me a nice meal the other day, it was some hard work. And she went into a lot of trouble to prepare a really nice lasagna. And I enjoyed it so much. It was so good. Um, uh, You know, well, it's hard work to prepare a spiritual meal too, but that's the way you express your love. Anyway, good question from Washington State. Uh, let's go to the next question. Someone, I think, in Savannah. Yes, they are holding by. Uh, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, I just happen to be in Savannah right now. All oh, right. by the way, Rick does have the best Sunday school at church. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people think so. It is a great class, and it's oh. a it's a great opportunity when people get in a small group in the church. We do ours uh, principally on Sunday morning because it's the Lord's Day, and people are going to come, and it's in an ABF where the church really shrinks, where people can get to meet other people. And sometimes people come to a larger church and say, oh, it's so big, I don't know anybody. Well, there's churches within the church, and if they'll just take initiative on the Lord's Day and get up and come and go to an ABF, it will make all the difference. Anyway, appreciate you calling. How can I help today? Well, RBF is more, RABF is more like a family. I will say that. Uh, but I, I just wanted to say I was at the, uh, the Men's Wildlife Supper Friday night. I, I helped serve, and it was such a blessing to stand there and, and watch all of those men come walking by the table and, and to know they were going to have the gospel shared with them and to, to listen to Dr. Record. And then this week I hear Joel Osteen come out and start criticizing the Apostle Paul and John and saying that what they said was wrong and saying that homosexuals, despite being an active homosexual, sure, they're going to get into heaven. Why not? 
And then with all of this nonsense with the Grammys, with, with people, with the foul language being bleeped out, I did not watch it. I just, I just read the reports of it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to watch that film. And I'm just, uh, Pastor Brogy, I'm just so concerned for our country, for, for the youth of our country, where this country is headed. I mean, Joel Osteen has millions of followers, and it just scares me to death. I mean, I'm, I understand what it says in Scripture about, about people like him and what he's doing, but we need more people like you, Pastor Brogy. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. We need more people like you. Well, I appreciate your encouragement, and I've not heard that statement yet by him, uh, so I'm not going to comment on that. I always have to have things confirmed for myself uh, before I could comment. It would ob- obviously awful if he if he did say the Apostle Paul was wrong on his teaching on homosexuality. He said that you know that's an evil thing to say about the infallibility and the inerrancy of God's word, but. Uh, the answer in America today is not in the White House, it's in the church house. And it's with the people who make up the body of Christ. And what has happened today is because people, Christians now I'm talking about, have become so lukewarm and so apathetic, they're no longer passionate about sharing Christ. You know, when I, I meet a young couple, they're in love, and I met this guy the other day, and he told me about his engagement. He couldn't help but talk about his girlfriend and his fiance, and because he's in love, and she was just kind of enrapturing his heart, and he liked talking about her. So many Christians today in the worldly pursuits of our day have lost their first love, and so they're not passionate about Christ, and so the gospel is not being shared anymore. And we continue to degenerate in the brightness of our light and the saltiness of our salt. If the salt has lost its savor, uh, it becomes no good except to fill potholes in. And uh, that's the day that we're living in more and more. Uh, So, yes, it was thrilling to see... uh, a couple thousand men come to the Wildlife Supper. It was very encouraging in that respect. And uh, uh, and we have a follow-up on Thursday night um, for, for men who came. And if you're listening and you still have questions or you brought a friend who uh, hasn't made a decision, uh, on Thursday night I'll be doing an overview of the whole Bible in about an hour uh, answering any questions the men want to ask that they can write down as they come in. They can bring their wives as well. Child care is available. And anyone who comes gets a brand new Bible. Uh, so that will be on Thursday night at 7.15. Anyway, let's go, to, uh, let's go to the next question. All right. I believe we've got another caller. Let's uh, go to them now. Uh, good morning. You're on the Bible line. Oop, lost them. Hang tight. Let's see if we can get them back. We must have dropped them by accident right. if they would call back. In um, the interim, let's go to the next uh, dictated question. All right. Uh, indeed. 525-1859 is the number if you have a question on this morning's Bible line. And uh, Trina from Shelburne, New Hampshire writes, I came across a commentary on the book of Daniel by J. Vernon McGee stating Daniel was most likely castrated and made into a eunuch when he was taken into captivity. I've never heard this before and was wondering what your opinion is. Well, J. Vernon McGee is a great uh, Bible teacher, was. He's in heaven now. Um, he had a ministry called Through the Bible, and every five years he would go through every book of the Bible. Um, I, I've not um, heard him say this, uh, but I, I do have his commentaries. I've not read them on Daniel uh, but someone gave me a set of them 20, 20 years ago. In either case, um, some people have come to the conclusion 
that Daniel was a eunuch for a couple of reasons. Let me read a couple of passages to you. Here's a prophecy in Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach, Baladin, son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters in a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where have, in, in where have they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, uh, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the words of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away and they shall become eunuchs, or you could translate it officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good. So there's a prophecy. Remember, Isaiah is a pre-exilic prophet. And among other people, he's, he's preaching to Judah. And so when you read the, the prophets of the Old Testament, you always want to ask, are they preaching to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, or to both kingdoms? You know, do they preach before the exile, during the exile, after the exile? So Isaiah is a pre-exilic prophet, and he's telling Judah. Uh, Judah made up the southern kingdom along with the smaller tribe of Benjamin, but they went after the, the name Judah, representing the two tribes. And um, he told them that the king of Babylon was going to come and crush them and carry away all the possessions that he had shown off. And indeed, that happened, uh, just as God predicted. And so there came a day when... Uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes down and he carries away uh, God's people into captivity. And so we read in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, I'm reading Daniel 1 now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Asphenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach the literature in the language of the Chaldeans. So um, he orders Asmanas, the chief of the officials. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word here for officials um, could also be translated eunuchs. And so with that said, uh, it's possible that Daniel and his three friends were eunuchs uh, or became eunuchs, were made eunuchs, as Jesus describes in Matthew 19. Sometimes men make men eunuchs. And this was not uncommon in ancient cultures. Uh, even in the New Testament, you see um, in Acts 8, the queen of Ethiopia, and she had an Ethiopian eunuch. And so these men, of course, could be trusted among women because all their drive was gone. 
with that uh, said, we don't know for sure that Daniel was a eunuch. It could also be translated simply an official. Now, the Old English translates it eunuch. Other old translations translated official. Most of the newer translations translated official, but it could be translated eunuch. We don't know. We don't know if Daniel and his three friends were eunuchs. Um, Daniel becomes the prime minister, um, and that would be unusual because usually while eunuchs were given some authority, they weren't given that much authority. Uh, But it's possible that he was a eunuch, but there's nothing specifically in the text that tells us that. And so, um, you know, we may get to heaven and find out that J. Vernon McGee was right on that, but you could translate the word either way. It could mean an official, just someone who's in charge, and indeed many officials could be eunuchs, but many of them, of course, were not, or it could mean a literal eunuch. The Hebrew word could go either way. We don't know for sure. Josephus, an ancient historian, said that Daniel was a eunuch. Uh, and that seemed to have been a tradition. So maybe it was. Uh, we don't know for sure. Anyway, fair question. Appreciate you asking it. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got Lee back on the line from Savannah. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello there, Lee. Are you there? No, I guess we lost Lee again. So um, anyway, uh, right. sorry, no, no Lee. sorry, Lee. All right. Uh, very good. Then uh, let's go to um, another question that was dictated uh, in 1 Samuel 28, verses 11 to 21. How is it possible that Samuel was brought up? Also, is Saul in heaven today? Well, Saul is certainly a highly debated one. And uh, I remember in seminary, I would have some professors who say Saul was lost. Some would say he he knew the Lord. He was certainly God's anointed, um, which meant that he had a special touch of God on his life by the Spirit of God, so much so that David saw the Spirit of the Lord depart from Saul. The Bible tells us that. It's not impossible, by the way, for God to even anoint and speak through an unbeliever. Uh, God does that with Balaam. Uh, Balaam, as we read in the New Testament, was a false prophet. We learn that from the book of Jude. He was what we would call an apostate. And yet the, the, the Spirit of God came on him when Balak wanted him to curse Israel, and he couldn't curse Israel, and all he could do was bless Israel, um, and, and God just made it that way, and yet he was an unbeliever. Which, by the way, is a reminder to me, because there are people who will attack the Apostle Paul and other writers of the New Testament and say, well, you know, he was, you know, chauvinistic, or he was homophobic, and... So, you know, you got Rob Bell and Brian McLaren all over YouTube, you know, endorsing homosexual marriage and saying, well, you know, God's in favor of this. And, you know, some people in the past had, you know, trouble with it, but we shouldn't in our day. What they're basically saying is Paul and other writers of the New Testament and Moses were liars and their own prejudice was just coming through or that we have a fluid morality, that morality changes from generation to generation. And it does not. The moral code of God is fixed. It's always been a sin to commit adultery, and it always will be. It's always been a sin to murder, and it always will be. It's always been a sin to commit homosexual acts, and it always will be. That will never, ever change. But the integrity of the Bible is not based on the perfection of people, because we're all sinners, even great writers like Luke and Paul, who gave us you know, the New Testament for the most part. 
um, as great as these men were, they were sinners like the rest of us. But the inspiration of the Bible does not depend on the perfection of men. It depends upon the power of the Holy Spirit to write infallibly so that he can even speak infallibly through a lost person. However, when it comes to Saul, I personally think we will meet him in heaven because God gives him to be king and he is the Lord's anointed in God's sovereign way for no one's in leadership apart from God. And, and God gives him a measure of the spirit. Uh, I think he was a rebel and God dealt with him accordingly. God chastised him and took him home. Uh, but I do think we will see him in heaven. Uh, the other part of your question concerns Samuel. Remember, under the old covenant, when a believer died, he went to Abraham's bosom or to paradise uh, and or to the term Sheol. And the term Sheol can refer to one of two compartments, righteous Sheol or unrighteous Sheol. Righteous Sheol is also called Abraham's bosom or paradise, and it was a place of delight. Unrighteous Sheol was a place of torment. And so Jesus tells a parable. Some think it's not a parable. Um, It doesn't change the truth of it in either case where Lazarus dies and the rich man dies. If it is a parable, it's the only parable where the person is specifically named. In either case, the rich man dies and goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom or what we might call paradise. Well, after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus walks on the earth for 40 days and he empties out uh, Old Testament paradise and it becomes New Testament paradise such that uh, today when a believer dies, he doesn't go to Abraham's bosom as such. He goes home to be with God, home to be with the Lord. And it's a little confusing, but that is also called paradise in the New Testament. Uh, there's Old Testament paradise, and then there's New Covenant paradise, and so Paul's caught up, and he has a, a vision of paradise, and it's paradisius, and then the word uranos, heaven, is used to describe parallel places. So you could call it heaven, you could call it paradise today, but not to be confused with Old Testament paradise. So Samuel was in Abraham's bosom, and um, and uh, he was brought up, literally, and so uh, you couldn't do that today, but... Uh, today, if you brought someone up, the only one you'd be bringing up is a demon. Uh, but certainly this would be, have been possible under the old covenant. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Uh, we had a question from um, Michael, actually Russell in Savannah. Uh, he wanted to know, did Adam and Eve, uh, their children and grandchildren, sleep with each other to populate the world? Well, obviously, um, you know, we learn in the book of uh, Genesis that Adam and Eve had uh, sons and daughters. Most people know of Cain and Abel, but when you go on into the fifth chapter, you also learn that he had daughters. And of course, you have to remember too that they would have been potentially hundreds of years apart. Um, where, for instance, then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. That's Genesis 5 in verse 4. So um, Cain either, you know, uh, he could have married his sister who could have been hundreds of years apart. And there was not a prohibition at this point. And probably some of the weirdness would have been taken out of it because of the vast age spread. But there was not a prohibition at this point 
to have had these kinds of relationships. There comes a point in the wisdom of God and the genetic pool of God where God then puts a prohibition on um, what we would call today incestuous relationships. And today it would seem very weird, and it is weird, and it is sinful today. And so God outlines, you know, you can't marry your cousin, uh, as Leviticus says, and your first cousin and things like that. So, um, yeah, they, they there were some relationships that took place back then, and that's how uh, the, the world was populated. And there came a point, though, where God put a hold on that. So God never changes, but the way he deals with men does change. And there are some laws of God that are eternal, some that God institutes at a particular point in time, uh, in a particular dispensation, because he's trying to accomplish something in particular. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Now we have Michael from Stella, North Carolina, who writes, I am looking for help explaining the Holy Trinity to my stepdaughter. Something in simple terms. She's a new believer, and although I've been a believer most of my life, I'm unable to explain it to her on a way she can understand. Specifically, she's having a difficult time grasping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, but also separate, and that they each have different roles. I sincerely appreciate anything you can offer. Well, what might help you, Michael, would be uh, we, we have a class at Community Bible Church called uh, the Discovery Class. And the discovery class is a 40 to 45 week discipleship course. And it's set up so someone can start any week they want. Uh, This week is week 12 and someone could go weeks 12 to 45 and one to 11 and get the whole class. So when people come to Christ, we immediately each week bring new people into that subject matter because we really deal with the rock bottom truths of the Christian faith. We've put... um, Uh, Out of the 20 handouts that take 40-some weeks to accomplish, 11 of those now are online and the messages that accompany them. And one of the messages deals with the triunity of God. And so I think it would be worth your while to possibly just go online and listen to that Um, and uh, get a good hold on it yourself. Because if you understand something clearly— you'll be able to communicate it simply. You know, there's an old expression that pastors use that when there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pew. And if you're misty in your own mind on the doctrine of the Trinity and how to, you're not going to be able to explain it to your child. And that's why God tells us as we open this program every week uh, to be diligent to show ourselves approved. Uh, The King James says, study and show thyself approved. Well, it's not an either or, it's a both and, and there's not a single English word that will capture the Koine Greek of of Second Timothy. Um, he's not just talking about any study. Some people study the Bible, but they don't really study it. You could ask them five minutes after their quiet time what they read, and they couldn't tell you if their life depended on it. Um, other people, they, they study the Bible with a diligence, and that's how we're to approach the Scripture. And so it's just a matter of priorities in our life. Um, But, you know, many times with kids, I'll explain to them, I'll say, well, you know, it's like spatial relationships. In any object that you can take, there's height, depth, and width. Even at a dot of ink on a piece of paper, there's height, depth, and width, as small as it may be in a dot of ink. Uh, There's spatial relationships throughout the universe. Um, Yet the height is not the width. The width is not the depth. The depth is not the height. You cannot have one without the other. They are distinctly different, but they are inseparable. 
time, there's past, present, and future time. The present is not the past. The past is not the future. The future is not the present. They are inseparable, and yet they are distinct. So in that handout, we kind of walk through one, each member of the Godhead, proving the deity of Christ, proving the deity of the Spirit, proving the personality of the Spirit as well. And and then we talk, not only are they uh, distinct members, but in co-equal members, but they, in co-eternal members, but they are one member. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Unlike um, T.D. Jakes, who says he's a oneness Pentecostal, he says, well, the Father becomes the Spirit, and then the Spirit becomes the Son, and the Son becomes the Father. No, they are co-equal, co-eternal persons. They are distinctly different, and yet they are inseparable. Um, So... Again, that's a real quick answer, but I think what would be very helpful would be for you to go on and online and listen to the Back to Basics series and uh, pull up the one that deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, to 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has a Kim in Raleigh, North Carolina, would like to know if uh, you know of any churches in the Raleigh area. A couple that I could mention. One would be uh, Colonial Baptist Church. That's an excellent church there. Um, And it's in Tryon, uh, or excuse me, it's in Cary. It's on Tryon Drive. But the pastor there, Steve Davey, he's a good, solid Bible teaching pastor. There's also one in, um, I think it's in Fuquay, Verena. So depending where you live, and the pastor there is Doug Humphrey. And uh, he pastors Triangle Community Church. And so those are two healthy churches there in the uh, greater Triangle area. All right, great. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Carl. How are you? Hey, doing fine. Thanks for calling today. Hey, I'm calling about a question I have. um, Matthew 27, uh, verse 46, when... Jesus is on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, just a couple questions to see what your thoughts are, to see if you can maybe help clarify. You know, over the years I've studied this, I've come to the conclusion that it's God turning his back on Christ because he's, he's bore our sins, and God can't be a part of sin. But um, I was uh, looking at Psalm 22 uh, in verse 1 and and had been... Uh, speaking with someone in the past that said, hey, listen, that's a fulfillment of Psalm 22. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. And, and I thought that was a, a little stretch, but I did find the parallel interesting and thought maybe you could tell me your thoughts on that. I preached a sermon one time on Easter on Psalm 22. And there's dozens of actually prophecies in that Psalm, that Davidic Psalm that were fulfilled on the cross. Um, someone asked me recently, they said, Pastor, you once said uh, that you thought Jesus said more on the cross than was recorded in the New Testament. And I said, yeah, I, I do believe that. There are seven statements uh, that are recorded in the New Testament that Christ made on that Friday during those six hours in which he hung there. But it appears from Psalm 22 that he said much more than those seven statements from what is said. Now, um, what you find in some Psalms is a near fulfillment as it related, say, in this case to David and a far off fulfillment. But there's no question as you read Psalm 22 uh, that it goes far beyond David 
uh, to the Messiah himself. And so when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, Yes, I think you're absolutely correct. There on the cross, Jesus not only dealt with the issue of physical death, but he dealt with the issue of spiritual death. Uh, He not only died physically, he died spiritually. He was forsaken by the Father and by the Spirit there on Golgotha. And as an infinite person, he could accomplish in a finite period of time, you know, if if hell is forever, then why didn't Jesus die forever? Because he's an infinite person. And so as an infinite person, he could accomplish in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people would take an eternity to do. But there was a period of time there where the Lord Jesus felt totally unowned, unloved, forsaken of God. And he experienced the, the, um, uh, what, what we would experience in hell. Uh, the, the fact that, uh, and, and I think that was the hardest part of the cross that he faced as he became sin for us and drank that cup that he would be forsaken of God. I don't think it was the nails in his hands and his feet that he said, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. I think he practiced what he preached, but the idea that one, he would become sin as an absolutely holy person and forsaken of the father uh, was a heart wrenching uh, experience because he had had an eternal unbroken uh, love with the Godhead. But that's what took place and what transpired on the cross as a payment for our sin. And thank God he was willing to, to pay that. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Maybe we can squeeze in one more. I don't know. Alrighty. Well, actually, I had uh, kind of removed those. We've got about a minute and a half left. Um, let me let me just go ahead and paste them back in here real quick. And uh, let's see. Uh, I heard a sermon on WAGP in which the pastor said babies automatically go to heaven despite their inherited sin nature because they did not suppress the truth. Uh, apparently. Those who hear the truth and suppress it are the ones who are eternally punished. Does that include adults who have not heard the truth and therefore have not suppressed it? Well, it's a good question, but for me to answer it fairly, I can't do it in 60 seconds. But I do have a handout that deal with two apologetic questions. One is, what about those who've never heard? Uh, People who live in sections of the world that have never been exposed to even the name of Christ. How does God deal with them? And what about those who can't believe? Little children, severely, extremely mentally uh, incapacitated people, aborted babies, miscarried babies. How does God deal with those? But we'll pick up this question next time, God willing, when we come back for another week of the Bible line. We're so glad you could join us today. If we didn't get to your question, there's always another week. And Uh, God hopefully will give us another opportunity. Wildlife Supper follow-up Thursday night. Come, 715. Child care available here at Community Bible Church. Come bring your questions. We'd love the opportunity to speak with you. Have a great day. Lord bless you.